Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, and today we're going to talk about racism and other issues in American history. Joining me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have one guest with us. James B. Lowen is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Vermont. He has written a number of books, including Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Jim, welcome to Bloomington. Thanks. Thanks. Have you been here before? I have, and it's a beautiful city with a beautiful campus. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. We we appreciate that, and welcome. It's springtime, too, so spring's (laughs) very nice here in Bloomington. Well, uh, Jim has been here for a few days, has participated in a couple of uh, programs already. The topic is uh, sundown towns, and I'm sure that uh, probably every interview you go into, the first question is, give me a definition of sundown towns. A sundown town is a town that was for decades, and some of them still are, all white on purpose. And, of course, they get their name from the fact that many of them, including, for instance, Linton nearby here, uh, had at their city limits uh, god-awful signs for decades that said, in the case of Linton, quote, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Linton. Uh, This isn't an Indiana phenomenon. It's uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin had such a sign. Hawthorne, California had such a sign. Uh, You don't have to have a sign to have the policy. And in fact, the signs are unknown east of maybe the Ohio-Pennsylvania line. Uh, But on the front cover of my book is a – well, it's a sign, but it's a nicer one. It says, whites only within city limits after dark. And that's a real sign. That came from a town in in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. When I went to do the research – I I grew up in Illinois and in Decatur, Illinois, and I knew I was going to do more research on sundown towns in Illinois than in any other single state. I thought I was going to discover maybe 10 of them in Illinois, maybe 50 across the country. To my astonishment, I discovered 474 in Illinois alone, um, at least another 200 in Indiana, uh, thousands of them, in other words. I estimate 10,000 across the United States, a flat majority, in fact, a 70 percent majority of all incorporated communities in Illinois, probably a similar percentage in Indiana, in Oregon, in many other northern states. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you go about – how do you go about uh, determining whether sure. a town is a sundown town or not? Well, I start with the census. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I had to learn was even though I'm talking about an all-white town that's all-white on purpose, they don't have to be all-white. And here's what I mean. Uh, first of all, there's folks in institutions – Uh, The United States has a pattern of locating prisons in sundown towns. So Vandalia, Illinois, for instance, which was the first capital of the state, was a sundown town until just recently. I I think it got over it in about 1997. But if you look at the 1990 census or the 1980 census, 1,300 African Americans in Vandalia, of whom 1,300 are in the prison. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Similarly, Anna, Illinois, ain't no doubt that that's a a sundown town, but it has 85 – African-Americans, of whom about 85 are in the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a college. Uh, In suburbs, sometimes it's live-in maids and live-in gardeners. Uh, But you can usually tell that from the census if you look carefully. You just don't want to be deterred by finding zero. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing you do. Then the next thing after you find – so it turns out that a lot of these towns, when they got rid of all their blacks, they made an exception. And I have a whole chapter in my book called The Exception That Exemplifies the Rule. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Pena, Illinois, not far from Decatur, right in the center of the state. Pena expelled its entire black population in 1899. But they didn't drive out the barber. Nobody had, nobody had anything bad to say about the barber. He was a barber for white folks, so he had white friends and associates. Pena proceeds to put up the infamous signs we've already mentioned at the north, south, east, and west gate to the city. And it becomes so racist that for – some period of time, the gas stations in Pena would not sell gas to black motorists, which that amazed me when I heard it. I lived in Mississippi for eight years. I never heard of a single gas station in Mississippi that wouldn't sell gas. I mean, among other things, here you are trying to run a sundown town and some of these black folks need gas to get out of town. I mean, it doesn't even make any <laughs> sense. Make sense. You know? But they, that's how racist it was. Nevertheless, you look in the census. In 1900, 1910, 1920, there's five, six, four black folks in Painted. That's the barber and his family. Mm 
So I realized if I set my sights at zero, I'd be doing bad work. I needed to set it low but not at zero. So I set it at 10. Mm -hmm. That's pretty rigorous still. Uh, The next thing is if you find a a town that has eight blacks or zero blacks for that matter, does that mean it's a sundown town? Well, I had thought that there would be three categories of all-white town like that, towns that were sundown towns, sundown suburbs – because many, many suburbs all across the United States started with the rule, no blacks, no Jews often. I thought the third category would be towns that just happened to have no blacks. I mean, whoever said black folks have to go to every little town Mm -hmm. in America? And I originally thought that would be the largest category of all. And that's why I thought there'd be maybe 10 in Illinois, as I said. And I had an aha experience doing this research, and it actually happened in my hometown of Decatur. because of the, the success of my book, Lies, My Teacher Told Me, which I think is the best-selling book by a living sociologist. There's some sociologists done better, but they're dead. Uh, <laughs> so I was the uh, guest speaker, the – what do you call it? The headliner for the second annual Decatur Writers Conference uh, because I'm a th- the third best-selling author from Decatur. That's another story there. But anyway, so I gave my talk based on ideas in Lies, My Teacher Told Me and stuff. This was back in 2001. But I had started doing research on sundown towns by then. So at the end of my talk, I said, well, here's what I'm working on now. And I described it. And I invited anybody in the audience who knew anything about the subject to come down and talk with me at the end. To my amazement, 20 people streamed down. And they told me stories about every little town around Decatur. Now, growing up, I knew these towns were all white. But it never occurred to me they were all white on purpose. And I just thought black folks had good sense and didn't want to live in them because they're so little. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't have a motion picture theater, et cetera. I was wrong. Uh, People explained to me, for instance, that Niantic, Niantic's a town of 890 at the northwest edge of Decatur. Niantic had a rule, two people told me, that uh, had an ordinance that blacks couldn't be there after dark. And as a result, the Wabash Railroad, which has its biggest – well, of course, it's now the Norfolk and Southern, but it was the Wabash – has its biggest yard to this day in Decatur. Uh, If the Wabash parked its work train in the Niantic part of the yard, they had to move it at dark because people sleep on the work train and some of those workers are African-American and they'd be violating the ordinance. So later I I touched base with two retired employees of the Wabash and they said, yes, we did have that rule. Uh, We did follow that rule. Uh, So obviously it was an ordinance. Uh, And then I learned – and this was the most astonishing story of them all. uh, Two people told me that evening that Villa Grove, which is a town over near Indiana actually. It's near um, Champaign-Urbana where the University Mm -hmm. of Illinois is, town of 2,500. That Villa Grove had – they had heard a whistle or a siren that sounded at 6 p.m. to tell blacks to be out of town. Yeah, right, I thought. I mean, I thought that was preposterous. I didn't know if you could have an urban legend in a town of 2,500, but if you could, I figured that has to be. What it was telling me was that they sounded a whistle. I thought it was maybe a factory shift change. And they told me, it was telling me, that Villa Grove was a sundown town, or at least these two people understood it to be one. But I didn't believe the story. Mm -hmm. So a year later, in August, October, exactly a year later, in October of 2002, I found myself, not by accident, in Villa Grove. And I walked up the steps to the uh, Shangri-La Hotel, an establishment <coughs> that I would not recommend. And um, actually, it's since then burned down. <laughs> but anyway, I was going to go interview some of the old white men who lived there on a permanent basis. And as I go up the steps, the weekend manager, perfectly reasonably, accosts me from his uh, from the huge porch and says, may I help you? And I say, yes. And so I go over and the following conversation occurs. I say, hi, I'm Jim Lowen, blah, blah, blah. I grew up in Decatur over here. Is it true that Villa Grove has a or had until recently a siren or a whistle that sounded at 6 p.m.? And he said, yes. And I said, well, is that on a factory or a grain elevator? And he said, no, that's on the water tower. And I said to myself, hmm, city property. Um, And it is on the water tower. And I went off and took a picture. It's still on the water tower. You can go take a picture. Uh, There's a portfolio of photos in the middle of my books on downtowns that includes that photo. But I went on and said to him, well, um, why did it sound at 6 p.m.? And he said, well, uh, hmm, do you mean um, originally? And I said, yes, originally. And he said, "Um, well, originally – 
And I said to myself, my God, it's true. And so in order to make it easier for him, I said four words with no content. So I didn't bias the interview. I said, it's okay. I know. And he, I didn't say what I know. Uh, he looked relieved and he said, well, originally it sounded at 6 p.m. to tell blacks to be out of town. I was still so blown away by this that in the next moment I wasn't a good interviewer. I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yes. I said, well, does it still go off? He said, well, no, they stopped it about three years ago. Uh, that would be 1999. I said, well, is that because Villagrove changed its policy? Well, no, he said he didn't know if Villagrove had changed its policy or not, but that was because residents living near the water tower complained about the noise. I went back on Monday. That was a Saturday afternoon. I went back on Monday. I had a total of 11 interviews about Villagrove. Everything he said checked out 100%. Uh, since then... This preposterous story, I've learned of at least six or eight other 6 p.m. whistles or sirens across the United States that were sounded for exactly that same purpose, including two others in Nevada that were sounded at 6 p.m. to tell American Indians to be gone. That's how overt it used to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've got to ask Go the, the dumb, obvious question. Is this then to avoid whatever uh, – crime risk there might be by sure. having those people still in town during the, the evening and, and dark hours? Yeah. It, basically, between 1890 and 1940 is this period we call the nadir of race relations. And that's N-A-D-I-R, or low point. A lot of people in my audiences think I'm talking about Ralph. Ralph yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the nadir of race relations was this period, 1890 to 1940. And during this time, the United States went so racist, north as well as south. I mean, we all know that the southern states during this time removed blacks from the voting rolls and from really from citizenship and and, uh, gave them inferior schools and so on. But what we don't realize is how bad it got in the north. And this is when sundown towns sweep through the north. So town after town, you see the black population dwindling to nothing. And in this state, they wind up in about eight places. You know, they wind up in Evansville and Indianapolis and French Lick, and Baden, I think, is the name of Baden West Springs. Baden. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, of course, Muncie. And, and you can name them. There's about four. There's I Gary. heard Elwood. When I was growing I grew up in Kokomo, and I always yeah. heard Elwood. As a sundown town. Yeah. Absolutely. Elwood, Elwood had two signs. One wouldn't do uh, at each side of town, saying exactly what, what the signs said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you grew up in Kokomo. Kokomo and Muncie are almost, excuse me, Kokomo and Marion are almost the only towns in the northern half of Indiana that allowed blacks, you know? I mean, it wasn't just Elwood. It was, oh, I'm going to put on my glasses. It was Huntington. It was Mm -hmm. Bluffton, Hartford City, little bitty towns, Swayze, Gas City. These are all Mm -hmm. towns that I've nailed for sure. I don't know about Logansport. You know, I have a huge suspect list because mm-hmm. I can't be everywhere at once. And in fact, maybe I could invite listeners. If you know about a sundown town or a town that you think was a sundown town, tell me what you know about it. I'd love to learn. And you can email me. And my email is Lowen, which is J-L-O-E-W-E-N, Lowen. The at sign, Jay Lowen at UVM, because I still get my email at the University of Vermont, <laughs> dot edu. So it's Jay Lowen, J-L-O-E-W-E-N at UVM dot edu. And I'd love to hear from you. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Jim Lowen is our guest. He's uh, the author of several books. Uh, the one we're talking about now, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. Were uh, you familiar with this concept growing up? Well, no, not growing up. And and it was. I went to your website this morning and looked at the long list of sundown towns in Indiana and was, is, frankly, surprised to see that, that – my hometown and many around it were not. On well, the see, list. I don't know about. It doesn't mean that it, yeah. that I've cleared it. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> what is your hometown? Uh, it's uh, Winchester is the name mm. of the hometown Around, and, near Muncie. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, as when I was growing up, there was one one black family and one Jewish family. Mm-hmm. My family, <laughs> and my you're family not black. was a Jewish family, <laughs> right? And I'm not black. Um, so, but. You know, I, so it's just surprising because it seems. Well, like you'll be pleased to be, know that actually all of Randolph County, may, which is where uh, Winchester is, right. may have been a sundown county. I'm not sure. Well, but I'm not, I not obviously. Yeah. I'm not pleased to know that, but <laughs> but I mean, it, the it would fit the the culture of the time. Yeah. It, it seems to yeah. me mm-hmm. what I what I experienced when I was 
was yeah. growing up. So I want to go back, though, to how you determine this. I mean, so, sure. Because some of, it, some of it that you've mentioned is, is very overt, you know, having a, 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 a sign. whistle or yeah. a sign. Yeah. But I would think that a lot of the towns that you've identified, I, I would think, I would hope, sure. are not quite so overt. That, that they're, uh, the city council or the town council doesn't have an ordinance that says Often no they blacks. didn't. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I interviewed a retired Washington Post reporter who grew up in Johnston City down in southern Illinois. And uh, I asked him, well, did Johnston City Post signs, did it have an ordinance? He said, are you kidding? We never needed that. If any black family slowed down in Johnston City, the police chief would just follow him and ask him, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that is an ordinance to all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. If the police chief is enforcing it, that's an ordinance. But often it was done informally. And how you nail it then is largely you have to do oral history, but you have to do a good oral history. So if somebody – I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, well, Smithville or whatever town we're talking about must have been a sundown town because I graduated from high school in 1968 and there wasn't a single black in the school system at that time. Well, that's just telling me the demography. That's not telling me that it was on purpose. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, somebody says to me, well, I think Smithville was a sundown town. My parents told me. When I asked them how come there aren't any blacks, they told me they, they just weren't allowed. Now, that's not good evidence, but that's beginning to be evidence. Then if somebody else says, uh, well, yeah, and in the 1970s when I was a, a junior in high school, there was a black family. I remember the, they had a boy who was in my grade, and he came to school for about a week, and then they left town. Well, that's telling me something else. Very few people move to a town for one week on purpose. Mm-hmm. So something probably happened there. And then if somebody else tells me, oh, yeah, you heard about that incident. Well, I can tell you there was a mysterious fire at that house. Then I've got it nailed. You know? mm-hmm. So you have to do good oral history. And then, but even then you have to ask one more question. How did you know about the fire? Mm-hmm. You know? mm. Well, I, I was alive at the time and I walked past it the next day. Okay, well, then, I, then you've got it nailed. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, you've talked a lot about you know, Illinois, Indiana. I know there are lots of other. You mentioned Oregon, lots of yeah, other states. Yeah. Um, what, what was the difference between the North and the South? Profound difference. And what's interesting is we Northerners, except I did live in Mississippi for eight years, so maybe I, Mississippi would never allow me to claim that I'm a Mississippian. Um, we Northerners typically get it wrong. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, as I mentioned, I lived in Mississippi for eight years. I tried to nail every sundown town I could find in Mississippi. I found six. This compares to 474 in Illinois, uh, probably uh, a similar number, let's say maybe 400 or so in Indiana. I'm, I'm 220 for sure. Um, yet Hollywood puts overt violence like this in the South. There are four movies that I know of that use the term sundown town or show a sign, a sundown town sign. Three of them are set in Mississippi, and one of them is set in Georgia. When you have a movie that really did take place in a sundown town, such as, for instance, a movie that everyone in this state is required to see before they graduate from high school. I'm, of course, talking about Hoosiers, the basketball classic. Now, in Hoosiers, Milan, a sundown town, plays for the sectional championship. I think it's called sectional in Indiana. I know it is in Illinois. In Jasper, which is another sundown town, uh, I got a wonderful email from a a woman from Jasper when I was doing the research for this. She says, all southern Indianans just laughed at that movie when we saw the black folks in the crowd scenes. And and there's an African-American cymbal player in the band. We knew that no African-American could be in Jasper after dark uh, at the time when the movie was played or even at the time when the movie was made, you know. Um, I think that's uh, an outrage. It makes us all stupid about America. We think that racism happened long ago and far away. You, you wrote a piece that I read when I was uh, looking at your website today that where you specifically criticized Honda for choosing Greensburg. Um, and you talked about you know, NPR's Adam Davidson who described Honda uh, – or not described Honda, but described Greensburg, saying it could be it could be a movie set for an ideal American small town. Yes. And you sort of took him to task for that. Yeah, uh, I actually didn't quite take Honda to task for choosing Greensburg. Right. I wanted to ask the following question, and I still want to ask Honda, and and I haven't heard anything back from Honda. Somehow, uh, I want to ask this because you know, before Honda locates an eight hundred million dollar plant, that they're going to do a little research on the community. Uh, that's the first thing that anybody does. I don't mean Honda particularly, any, any manufacturer or any big uh, company. Uh, 
So you know that Honda had to know, if not that uh, Greensburg was all white on purpose, at least that it was all white. So the question, and it, it certainly was a sundown town. Uh, hopefully it's getting over it. Uh, the question then is, did Honda choose Greensburg because it's all white, or did, did they choose it despite it's being all white? And if the second, then what are they going to do about it? I mean, how are they going to uh, diversify their workforce? If they have a, a uh, black, or for that matter, a Japanese, but Japanese will get along in sundown towns nowadays. It's, it's really only black folks. Mexicans are allowed in sundown towns nowadays, Jews for sure. It's only black folks who are still kept out. If they have a black vice president or a black plant manager or, or a person from Indianapolis who wants to become a drill press operator at Honda, I don't care. How are uh, the folks at Honda going to make sure that they will be welcome in Greensburg? Did they explore that? Are they thinking about it? And, and that's what I'm really asking. And what I got back, I mean, it made quite a flap. It was in all kinds of newspapers in Indiana. Uh, what I got back was a bunch of defensiveness, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't get an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Um, I, I want to follow up on that just uh, a little, I guess the whole concept, because, uh, you know, you talked about 1890 to 1940 being mm-hmm. the nadir of, of racism, yes. and racial issues. Um, these, the sundown towns that you list now, and you've identified the 464 in Illinois and 220 or so in Indiana, I mean, are you looking at those as, as towns that at one point were a sundown town, or how many of those do you think still are? That's a good question, and it's a tough one to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that some of them are over it, or kind of over it. I mean, Valparaiso, Indiana, for instance, they actually wrote a book about how they got over it. Uh, and it's not a bad book. It's called Bringing It Home. Uh, some, some faculty members and students at Valparaiso University actually went out and recruited a black family, and then they got another one. Uh, and they brought them to, to Valparaiso, and they had to face down death threats, and they had to mount a 24-7 uh, watch on the house to make sure that it wouldn't be firebombed. But then it worked out. And What year was that? Uh, 1971, maybe. Okay. Uh, you know, I've got 10,000 of these on my oh, mind, sure, so sure. don't hold me to that. But, yeah. but it was in the 70s. Yeah, I think right. so. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I, I read a report about race relations in Valparaiso just last year that uh, argued that they are terrible. And so I'm not going to dispute that. But at least Valparaiso has race relations. You uh-huh. know, at least there is a small black community now. Uh, so I would argue that Valparaiso at least is no longer a sundown town. Now, what about Ulitic? Or what about Martinsville, for that matter? Martinsville gets all the press in Indiana. I find that lots of states, well, not lots, several states, have one town that they pick on. And ironically, sometimes the folks doing the picking themselves live in a different sundown town, and they're so glad that they're not getting all the press that Minesville gets. Minesville deserves all of its bad press, I think, but so does Linton, mm-hmm. which he doesn't get, and so does Ulytic, and so does, uh, you know, town after town. Now, a very interesting thing happened up in the north uh, of Indiana, and that's Bluffton. Now, Bluffton was a sundown town, but last year, I think it was, Bluffton, and they got some good press for this, and they deserved it. Bluffton joined, they're a member of the National League of Cities. Now, the National League of Cities is actually better known as the National League of Small Towns because I don't think, you know, Chicago or New York are in it, but uh, Bluffton is and lots of cities of that size. And they have a new initiative, by now it's maybe two years old, uh, called Inclusive Cities or Welcoming Cities or something like that. And it's an option. You don't have to sign on for it. But Bluffton signed on for it. This means, among other things, that they put up a, a sign at the edge of town, only it's saying just the opposite of the mm-hmm. old signs. Mm-hmm. And then they have to have things like a human relations council or, or some kind of ombudsman or, or some kind of process for uh, people to bring a complaint to. Well, Bluffton did it. So uh, even that helps Bluffton get over it. So there are towns that have gotten over it. Mm-hmm. I, I would say I would say in uh, Martinsville's defense, if I might, that they've they've done a lot of that in trying to get over. Well, that. yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met with eight people from Martinsville the night before last, mm-hmm. and um, I suggested that they should do just what I just said, and they they expressed some interest in thinking about doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't have any kind of institutionalized thing, like any kind of human relations council or any kind of um, ombudsperson or anything like it, and. And they kept saying no to every idea I had. I mean, like I suggested it. And they said, oh, well, we could never do that. And, mm-hmm. and they, it's a very conservative community. Well, I don't know that conservative has to mean racist. 
You know, I think conservative has some other meanings besides racist. So I'm hoping that Martinsville will do some of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe that every and, and again, not just Martinsville, but Huntington sure. and all, all the rest. I think every sundown town, whether in Indiana or anywhere else, needs to do three things to get over it. First, they need to admit it. We did this. And some of these towns are still in denial. You know, uh, second, they need to say we did it. And we're sorry. They need to apologize. And third, they need to say, we did it, we're sorry, and we don't do it anymore. And they need to put teeth in that last sentence. And that's where the institutional change comes in. The, the police force needs to hire – I'll set my sights low. They need to hire one black officer. The school system needs to hire one black teacher. And then maybe you can even hire a second one, you know. Uh, and by the time a few of those things happen, then pretty soon you've got eight black families in town and you're over it. You still have race relations problems. you still got to do some work. But you're over being a sundown town. All right. We've hit we've hit halftime here with, with Jim Lowen. Uh, our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Jim's offered a lot of uh, provocative thoughts, I'd say, in our first half of the program. So we hope to hear from you uh, when we come back after this short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU, in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations, is offering PBS Teacher Line. It's an online professional development resource for pre-K through 12 teachers endorsed by the U.S. Department of Education. It's an opportunity to earn renewal units for license certification and graduate degree credit as a way to meet state and federal requirements for highly qualified teachers. More information at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, and our guest today, Jim Lowen, uh, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Vermont, and the author of a number of books, including Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. Now, you mentioned three things that um, the communities need to do, and I know that the final chapter in your book, I believe, is called The Remedy. Yeah. Uh, are those the three things that are the remedy, or is that just the beginning of it? Well, that, that's just the beginning of it, but that would be good. Uh, I actually give suggestions in that last chapter for things that an individual black family can do, that an individual white family can do, uh, that an individual can do connected, let's say, with a church or with an employment organization, maybe a company or whatever. Um, the largest scale remedy that I propose is a thing called the Residence Rights Act. And this was invented by me, and so so far it hasn't has yet to be passed by the United States Congress or any state legislature. But then my book hasn't been out that long, and I'm waiting for them to step up to the plate. And I'm deadly serious about it. And what it consists of is this: uh, it's kind of modeled after the Voting Rights Act. See, I actually think that even in our current with our current administration, and and I say even because the the Republicans have kind of become in 1964 and 68, and then since then, the the party of of white supremacy a little bit, but. I think even the, with, with uh, the Republican administration, it's very hard to argue in favor of sundown towns, that there should be towns uh, that should keep out uh, or should have the right to keep out black folks. So it's all kind of done undercover these days. But So I think that this act could be passed. If you had the three following characteristics, number one, sundown town history. And that can be proven. We've already discussed how to prove it. And, and I think I have proven it for, for hundreds of towns across the U.S. So if you have a... Sundown town history, number one. Number two, if you still have an overwhelmingly white demography, uh, and number, which some, town, some towns don't anymore, but if you still do. And number three, if you have two complaints from black or others, Latino, whatever, who were unable to rent or buy in the town, uh, then the Resident Rights Act would kick in. And what would it do? Well, one thing it would do is it would remove the mortgage income tax exemption from your income tax. Now, this is 
This exemption is the number one reason to own a home in America. Uh, I mean, I'm actually in favor of home ownership, but uh, if, if residents, uh, if listeners don't know what I'm talking about, if you make, let's say if you make um, $50,000 and you pay $10,000 of it in rent, well, that's too bad. You get to pay income tax on $50,000. But if you make $50,000 and you pay $10,000 of it towards your mortgage because you're buying your property, about 9000 of that $10,000 in the early years of a mortgage is going to be interest. And you don't have to pay tax on $50,000. You pay tax on $41,000. You get to subtract that $9,000 out. So it saves you a bundle. Well, why is that? The extensible reason for that is because the United States supports home ownership, and I think that's fine. But do we support home ownership by white folks in continuing sundown towns? I don't think that should be a national value. So if we remove that income tax exemption once the Residence Rights Act kicks in, the next day, you know what's going to happen? Every resident of Smithville or whatever town we're talking about is suddenly going to want to have black neighbors. Because they want that income tax exemption and there's going to be a groundswell of support to become a welcoming town. We're going to go recruit them from Indianapolis. We'll go buy them. We're not proud. Uh, And it'd be great. And I would also point out this is the only civil rights measure that wouldn't cost a dime. In fact, it would be income producing. Mm -hmm. So go pass it, Indiana. (laughs) You don't have to worry about the federal government. You can do it on your own. All right. We're going to go to the phones. We have a phone caller. It's Chris. Chris, go ahead. Uh, Yes. uh, Forgive me if you already answered this. I just tuned in recently. But – if a town um, wants to get rid of that label of the sundown town and wants to recruit African-American families to it, um, how does it go about doing that? And, you know, how do you convince families to come to a place where a lot of people might not be very welcoming? That's well, a great question. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, it's a, it's a complex question in that if, the town, if, if a lot of people aren't welcoming, then the town isn't ready to get rid of it and, and isn't over it. Um, I think part of the problem is this. Um, most of the people who enforce sundown towns today, we might call them the thug population. They are 20 percent of the population. They are maybe 4 percent of the population, certainly not a majority, even in the worst sundown towns. But they feel empowered because of the sundown town's legacy, the sundown town's history, and the sundown town's demography. So as soon as a town steps up to the plate and does the three things I mentioned, namely recognizes we did it, apologizes, and sets up some kind of commission or uh, ombudsman or civil relations group or whatever, that, uh, civil, civil liberties and civil rights group, so that it won't happen again, that group starts becoming unempowered and the 80 percent or even the 96 percent majority starts being empowered. So hopefully that will – that's what I would suggest anyway as the first step. Okay. In terms of recruiting, the other, another thing they can do, every town is an employer. You know, the school system's employed, the fire department employs, the, and so on. So you can go recruit and employ diversely right there. And, and I think a lot, of, a lot of people in Smithville are going to have trouble thinking they're going to burn out the town policeman who's black. I mean, he's got some legitimacy even if he's new. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. And, uh, yeah, we're not picking on Smithville. Just an example. Is there a Smithville? There, there is. Oh, oh my. It's yeah. very close. Oh, very close. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Let's make it Jones. Is there a Jonesville? Not, 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 not around here. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Here's a uh, first of a, two emails that have come in. Uh, this one begins, could you give some examples of brave individuals that helped to end the sundown practice, sundown town practice at a town in south or central Indiana? No. And the reason is for two reasons. Um, I don't know that much about all these different towns. I mean, it was easy to find out about Valparaiso because of the published book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And number two, a lot of towns in southern Indiana haven't gotten over it. So no such individual has stepped up to the plate. Uh, I suspect there are towns that have got. And one other thing, I I have a, a considerable discussion in sundown towns about towns that almost went sundown and didn't way back in 1912 or 1932 or whenever the heck it was because of some brave or courageous individual who stopped it. Uh, I, no specific example from Indiana comes to mind right now. I have a couple of ideas from places that did this in Texas or in Arkansas or in Illinois, but uh, I bet that happened in Indiana too. But no, I can't say, yes, here's the town and here's the, the person. Okay, here's the next email. Uh, it says, I tuned in a little late. Could you tell the listeners whether Bloomington was a sundown town? As far as I know, it never was. Okay. Uh, I think it had a black population throughout. 
Okay, and it continues. I lived in the South for a long time, and I never heard a white person use the word nigger in anger until I moved to Indiana. The racism here is incredibly shocking to me. Why does Indiana seem to be so backwards compared to other states, even the southern states, when it comes to racism, sexism, and other other progressive social changes? Uh, That is a phenomenon. And I don't think it's just Indiana, um, but it is an interesting north-south comparison. Now, I know quite a bit about Mississippi, and I wouldn't say Mississippi is necessarily less racist. It's different there. Um, But I've already mentioned how there weren't any sundown towns there. And even historically, there's some good research years ago by a woman named Emma Thornbrough, a famous Indiana historian, who's who did almost the only – there's almost nothing ever been written about sundown towns before my book. And in her book, her general book about African-Americans in Indiana, she at least mentions the subject and, and mentions some uh, cases of it. And she talks about two different cases, I think, of white Southerners from the South <laughs> as opposed to white Southerners from the North. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> white Southerners from the South who come to Indiana – with their maid, maybe. Mm-hmm. And they find that they have to send their maid home lest she be killed. And they just don't understand this. You know, who's going to do all the work? Why, you people are crazy. Uh, so this is not a Southern phenomenon. And in this sense, I think in a lot of ways, uh, race relations – well, we had this conversation this morning at IU. Uh, race relations at IU are behind race relations at the University of Georgia, according to a woman who made a very compelling presentation about that. Mm-hmm. And she said, not that Georgia is so great, but – and then she went on to list some of the problems, that, uh, the, the segregation on campus and so on. Yeah, that seems that there's a separatist kind of approach in the north as compared to the south. Is yeah, that right? That's right. Uh, and, and it's terrible. And we've got to get over it. I actually do think – I mean I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I actually do think we're getting there. Uh, and I wouldn't blame Indiana worse than, say, Wisconsin or worse than, say, you know, other, other states. Uh, one of the good things about Indiana, actually, is that white folks are very aware that Indiana went under Ku Klux Klan control briefly in the 1920s. Now, there are actually three other states that did that too, uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, and Oregon. Uh, but most Indiana people think that theirs is the only state to go under Ku Klux Klan control. And therefore, they're aware, at least, like this emailer was, that um, racism is a particular problem in Indiana. Well, I think that's good because that's a, a step towards solving the problem. Uh, you mentioned um, the question I asked about Bloomington. I know we've had uh, conversations on this show before. George Talaferro was here. Mm-hmm. It was a very interesting conversation. He he is a, a man who you know was a star athlete at Indiana University, one of the first African-American player, maybe the first African-American player in the NFL and he talks about the segregation that went on. Perhaps it wasn't a sundown town. Right. Mm-hmm. But right. so, so could you discuss that difference a little bit? Oh, sure. I mean, Bloomington even had de jure segregated schools. And a lot of people don't realize this. Until the Supreme Court ordin- uh, decision in Brown v. Board in 1954, if you were black in, in Bloomington, you went to what was first called the colored school. And, and then it got somebody's name. Banneker. Banneker, uh, yes. Um, and that only closed after that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not unheard of to me because some towns in southern Illinois, like uh, Centralia, Illinois, did the same thing. But it sure doesn't make it a bastion of, of uh, racial tolerance. Uh, and, of course, you couldn't sit in the main part of the theater, the movie theater. You couldn't eat in most of the restaurants and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, it was, it was a terribly racist place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I have to say my sundown town research sets its sights so low uh, that compared to most other Indiana towns, uh, Bloomington was excellent. <laughs> Another example like that would be um, uh, infamous uh, Marion. Marion is infamous because of the near triple lynching, the famous double lynching that happened in 1933, I think it was. Um, famous book on it called The Lynching in the Heartland. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Madison. Yeah. And yet I would argue Marion had pretty good race relations compared to, say, Huntington or, or the towns around it because it allowed black folks in anyway. I mean, I've got very low standards for uh, – I'm, I'm speaking ironically, of course. Of course. Uh-huh. I will say this. I, I just learned yesterday uh, some of the black population of Bloomington, according to the, the history of, of black folks in Bloomington that I read, uh, came from other small towns in Indiana. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Why? You know, I think these were – as these other towns were becoming sundown towns, so I think that they had to flee these towns and I'd like research on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting. All right. Uh, we have about 15 minutes to go, 855 and noon at indiana.edu. Yeah, what I'm wondering is there there weren't that many major metropolitan areas, if you will, um, during the time frame that you, you're – 
focusing on the 1890 to 1940, especially. So, uh, you know, if not in these smaller towns and and with a limited number of metropolitan areas to go to, I I don't know where they where black people would have had an opportunity to go. Well, in 1890, black folks lived in every county in Indiana except one. By 1940, they basically were excluded from about 21 counties. Okay. That's how things got worse during the Nader. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just Indiana. Uh, black folks lived across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in 1890. By, uh, they were about 400. Not, that's not a lot of folks, but still, they were all across the Upper Peninsula. By 1940, what had been 400 had dwindled to about 280, of whom 150 were in the penitentiary up there. So it had really dwindled to 130. Um, Montana, same thing. So what we don't realize is how racist the United States became between 1890 and 1940. Um, I I argue in my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, that during this period, John Brown went crazy. And my audiences laugh. John Brown was, of course, executed in 1859. He went crazy in 1890. And the reason I say that is because between 1890 and 1940, we had gone so racist as a nation, north as well as south, that we could not understand, could not comprehend how any white person could give up his life on behalf of black freedom. Well, if you just cannot comprehend somebody's – that's almost the definition of craziness, you know? Mm-hmm. If somebody does something that you, is so bizarre, you cannot comprehend it. So Brown went crazy during the Nader period. In fact, I've always thought it would be an interesting – book to read, or maybe just an article, uh, an assessment of race relations in the United States, depending on using John Brown's sanity as a, as a litmus test. <laughs> How crazy was he? Because right now, it's interesting, right now, John Brown is getting a little less crazy. Uh, I'll give you an example. My book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, my bestseller, is based on my intensive reading of 12 high school American history textbooks. Uh, Indeed, I'm the only American ever to have read 12 high school American history textbooks. That's a near-death experience. Um, (laughs) So you look at one of them. The bestseller in the 70s and 80s was called uh, Rise of the American Nation. Then after we lost the war in Vietnam, they retitled it Triumph of the American Nation. And now it's called uh, Holt American Nation. They've put the publisher's name up there. It's been in print since 1951. It's still in print. How does it treat John Brown? Well, in 1951, in terms of what John Brown did at Harper's Ferry, you remember he, he took the arsenal and held it for a day and was, uh, had a confused plan of maybe arming slaves and having them take right. to the highlands and so on. In the first edition, they call it, uh, they say this, it was a wild plan certain to fail. That's still what they say in 1961. But then in 1981, they say it was a bold plan almost certain to fail. Now, that's very economical. You know, we change W-I to B-O and we add the word almost (laughs) and we – that's 11 cents worth of typesetting, right? And we've made John Brown just a little less crazy, you know? And now in most textbooks, he's merely a religious fanatic. So he's getting back, you know, as our race relations get better. I think it was the civil rights movement that intervened between 1961 and 1981. I guarantee you, John Brown did nothing new. (laughs) (laughs) We have have several phone calls, and we have about 10 minutes to go, so we're going to try to go quickly. Uh, First to Kevin. Kevin? Hi. Hi, Kevin. Hi. I was wondering uh, uh, how things like institutional racism with regards to maybe like churches and schools and things like that, you know, implicitly endorse or enable or support attitudes in communities that, you know, keep these kinds of things going on? Well, sure they do. Um, I am hoping that some of these institutions at least try to teach better attitudes. Uh, The problem in America, unfortunately, has been, though, that we tend to emphasize work on attitudes rather than work on actions. And this is, of course, what we sociologists call the difference between prejudice and discrimination. And a lot of people just assume this is reasonable. I mean, you have to change people's hearts and minds before you know before you get anywhere, or you have to change their the prejudice before you can attack discrimination. And it's just the opposite. Um, what you have to do is change actions. And I'll give you a specific. I was in Mississippi before and after massive school desegregation in that state. Uh, if you asked whites in 1963, 1965, 1967. Uh, many of the questions that Gallup polls always ask, one of them, for instance, is, it is okay to have blacks as foremen over whites. 
Okay, and you can agree or disagree. You can give it a plus one, two, three, minus one, two, three. If you ask whites that in the early 60s, you'd get maybe 9 percent agreeing. As soon as the schools desegregated, which they did en masse in January of 1970, within seven months of that, by, by the fall of 1970, instead of 9 percent agreeing, 63 percent agreed. What had you changed? You had changed practice. When you change practice, people have to change their attitude to rationalize the practice. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Robert's next. Robert? Yes. Um, I'd like to go back, if I may, to uh, earlier remarks about Honda and Greensburg. Yes, sir. I, uh, now, I don't speak for Honda, but from what I read in the paper, they decided on Greensburg because of several business considerations, uh, the geographic location, tax relief, road access, etc., business conditions. Your speaker there seemed to imply that uh, because they didn't have an active affirmative action type program high in their list of uh, qualifications, that they are somehow uh, wrong. I uh, Now, let me say this. I'm colorblind when it comes to ability to do a job. But I don't think that a company necessarily has, says I have to have X percent of blacks qualified or not in order to have a, a decent business. Uh, they're in business to make good cars and make money. If there's a black machinist or whatever that's good, he'll get a job with Honda, I'm pretty sure. I'll, I'll listen to your comments. Okay, thanks. Well, Robert. I agree with most of what you said. The, the, my only, and and I, I didn't even use the word affirmative action, but I think it's deformative action or affirmative inaction when you locate in a town that sends out the signal, uh, well, we're not necessarily interested in uh, employees who aren't white. Now, I, you know, I haven't heard back from Honda, and I really would like to hear from Honda. Um, I don't think that Honda will discriminate against a black applicant who's going to work on their shop floor or who's going to work in their office, for that matter. Um, but I do think that by choosing a former sundown town that is still overwhelmingly white, they are sending a signal, well, you know, we're not necessarily interested in, in all employees. And my main question to Honda then is, will you not step up to the plate and send out some kind of signal to counteract the signal of your location. Uh, I, I, I went through all this with Krispy Kreme Donuts when they located in Effingham, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Now, Effingham's on major transportation routes, both railroad and mm -hmm. um, interstates, two different directions, and that's why they claim they located there. But Effingham is also a sundown town, uh, was until very recently. Uh, again, what is Krispy Kreme going to do about that? How are they going to sell the notion that they're open to all when they chose to live there? I think that's the step they need to take. I think they can take it. Okay. But they haven't. Here's another email that just came in. It says, I just checked your website and found my hometown in Ohio. Perhaps that explains the 10 o'clock whistle from the local fire station every evening. Thank you for your research and exposure of this horrible practice. And then there's a P.S. It says, there is a small town called Jonesville between Columbus and Seymour. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. Right. We're going to use Nowheresville from right. now on. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to Smithville and Jonesville. All right. We have another couple calls. Marsha's next. Marsha? Um, hello. Hello, Marsha. Um, I just uh, called because I wanted to know if you've heard anything about the practice of character assassination to drive people out of areas. When we moved over into uh, western Indiana, I checked in one town. I have an adopted biracial son. Um, and he... I, I spoke to the people in the town to find out if it would be welcoming. Um, I was told by a man that worked at a gas station there that they had had a uh, family move in to town, and the women in the town had quickly um, circulated the information that the woman was not to be trusted. The children were okay, but the woman was not to be trusted, and they moved out in a very short time. Um, needless to say, we didn't move there. Now... We moved to another area, but I'll tell you the truth. I'm not sure that the same thing hasn't happened to our family. And yeah. I just wondered if you'd heard of that practice, and I'll wait for your response. All right, Marcia, thanks. I haven't heard of that specific practice, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I have a chapter in the book called Enforcement, and many of the methods of enforcement these days are very informal like that. So it doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcia, good luck to you. I'm sorry for the problems yeah. that you're having. Right. Okay, we have one more call. It's John. It's, this, will be, this will be our last call. But John, go You ahead. basically touched on this before several times, but um, 
a lot of the towns still do have kind of the unwritten um, sundown laws, or at least somewhat enforced them, or maybe they would harass people. Yeah, um, I know right. Martinsville, some people refer to that as Martucky, actually, because of their <laughs> attitudes. But um, I also had a friend that had a car dealership in Columbus. This was in the 70s. And he didn't make it largely because he was one of the first Afro-American businessmen, probably the first Afro-American car dealer in Columbus. So there's still a lot of uh, prejudice that needs to be changed before racism can really be ended. All right, John. Thanks for your comments. I agree. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's easy to agree with. All right. I, I want to get uh, in the last three minutes. There, there is a lot in your other books, and I just the titles of your books just fascinate me. And the one, Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your High School History Textbook Got Wrong. The other one that fascinates me, Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. You, Could you give us a couple of examples yes. of what, what they've gotten wrong? I was going to say, I, I'd hate to get off this program without talking about um, what I think is the hilarious lack of women on Indiana's historical markers. Now, for, I must be a glutton for punishment because for this book, Lies Across America, I attempted to read every state historical marker in the U.S. And I read them all for Indiana, for example. I went to the office. Uh, an excellent woman named Judy Ripple used to run it. She's now retired uh, in Indianapolis, of course. And uh, I'm sitting there reading these markers. They're all arranged by uh, county. And I'm down to about S. Uh, hadn't finished him yet, but I knew Ms. Ripple was, had to leave early that afternoon. I was going to finish after she left. So I, I've read most of them. I mean, I'd gone from A to S, and I hadn't accounted a single historical marker for a white woman. Uh, there had been one for an uh, African-American woman and two for a Native American woman, the same woman. But that was it. And so I said to her, uh, well, um, do you guys have any historical markers for, for women, for white women? And she said, well, and her, she looked kind of chagrined, and she said, well, we have one. She had her gallbladder out. Uh, so she had her gallbladder out. She said, yeah, yes. Well, I came upon it a little later, and, and she had the story slightly wrong. Uh, it was the story of a woman, and I don't have that book right in front of me, so I don't remember her name, but she uh, had, she was a pioneer heroine of abdominal surgery. That's what it says. <laughs> and it says, here she was in Kentucky. And she had a, a, a very famous surgeon, he turned out to be, uh, removed a huge growth from her uterus. It wasn't her uh, gallbladder. gallbladder. Uh, years later, her son moves to Indiana. I think Crawfordsville, but I'm not sure. And he becomes a Presbyterian minister. And when she begets, becomes old, she comes and joins him. So as far as the state of Indiana is concerned, all she has done of merit is she came into the state minus a body part. Okay. <laughs> uh could this be a feminist marker? I don't think so. No. <laughs> All right, Jim. Thanks a lot. We are out of time. But I'm glad you got to tell that story. Uh, Jim Lowen has been our guest today. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.